Hi, this is Anne Philippi, founder of the New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Hotscap Show. Today, I would say I have a very, very special guest because that guest is pretty unexpected to most of you. My guest today is Tobias Silberzahn. And Tobias is a partner in McKinsey's Berlin office, where he is a member of the healthcare practice and innovation practice. So just in case you have not heard of McKinsey, which is unlikely, but you never know, the company is one of the most famous management consulting groups and supposed to know it all. They're business consultants who travel the world and charge corporations top dollar to help them run with a state-of-the-art efficiency. McKinsey gets called in when things are good, it's time to expand, or business is going really well, or if things are bad, to help bosses make difficult and unpopular decisions. Known as the firm, McKinsey hires the best credentialed people. Over the last 13 years with McKinsey, Tobias has served mainly digital health startups, established healthcare companies and ministries of health. He led McKinsey's global health tech network, a community of over 1,500 digital health companies. His focus area, though, is healthcare innovation and health tech business building, where he supports clients on R&D, commercialization and scaling questions. He also hosts the McKinsey MedTech R&D Roundtable, the Pharma Technical Development Forum and many other network events in the field. Within McKinsey, he co-leads the health and well-being programs for employees in Germany and Austria, focused on sleep, nutrition, stress management and fitness. So Tobias needs to look into new mental health tools if it comes to his employees. But also at one point, he might look at as McKinsey into psychedelic pharma companies, which is in the future, but you never know how far is this going to go. Tobias and I talk about the great resignation, the idea of health that Generation Z, the millennials and Generation X has developed. And we talk about the future of corporate mental health and how this could actually look like. And as you can imagine, since we're the new health club, I try to engage with Tobias in a conversation about how psychedelics will enter a future workspace. Since all the current corporate companies are really challenged and need to change from within or need a tool to change from within, let's call it that way. So let's see how our conversation goes with that. And please enjoy the show and Tobias Silberson from McKinsey. Hi, and welcome to Bia Silberzahn. I'm just going to read the explanation what you're doing from LinkedIn, because I think it's a very good explanation. <laughs> so within McKinsey, I co-lead our health and well-being program for employees in Germany and Austria, focused on sleep, nutrition, stress management, and fitness. So maybe you can start with an explanation what this actually means to people. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to see you again, uh, Anna, and looking forward to the discussion. Me too. Maybe to start, right? I'm originally a biochemist and an immunologist, and so therefore have always been, uh, of course, thinking about the body and how everything works together. And then have found a bit of, you know, my, my own need to improve my health and well-being um, a couple of years ago turned a bit into sort of a biohacker. And when then increasing amounts of people in my company um, heard uh, the stuff that I'm doing, right, then at, at some point I was asked, oh, would you like to lead our health and well-being program for our employees? And uh, that's a bit how that came about. Um, in this program, what we are trying to do, we are trying to really you know, take the people by the hand where they are, with their needs, with their desires, etc., with and, and think about what is really the underlying motivation and the purpose um, and the aspiration that people have, and then think about how can they be at their best, right? So we we don't really have a 
organizational goal, right? We believe in the notion that if people are at their best, if people feel good and are in a positive mind frame, then um, all sorts of good things will happen and people will like it. Um, so that's a bit the, the foundational thinking, right? Um, and uh, then for some people, you know, they then start with the stress management, mindfulness, mental health kind of things. Other people are more in the nutrition fitness space, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it varies. And, and from my perspective, the beauty comes together when, when sort of sleep, nutrition, fitness, stress management, right? When you find a set of micro habits that is actually sort of positive and, and keeps you balanced. Okay. I mean, it seems to me though, it's still like a pretty big job. I mean, basically it's almost bordering on a, I mean, not, not a doctor's appointment, but I mean, like you say, everybody has a very individual setup. So let's say, does everybody have an aura ring or like, how do you guys <laughs> yeah, approach people working at McKinsey? Like, do you ask them actively? Would you like to look into strategies or support systems? How do you approach them with their mental health, which is not sometimes so easy to talk to people about, right? I mean, I guess. Mm, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll just start with my personal story because that is sort sure. of uh, at least, I would say, one of our segments, right? Um, and, and with segments, I mean different types of employees, right? There is sort of one employee segment that we, we often see, right? Who say, oh, you know, I've gained some weight, uh, right? I've worked um haven't eaten so well right desk job and and sort of gained a few kilos and now i want to do something about it right that is sort of a typical segment of employees that we see right then we have a second a segment of of employees that likes to feel better or be happier i'm personally in that segment and i'll quickly tell my story that you you can see so how that evolved And that is then often around balance, well-being, uh, stress management, etc. Right. So the framing is often like that, and, and less about you know mental health. Um, and then the, there is of course also a third segment of people, right, who then have read about stuff, right, have uh, you know followed biohackers on Instagram, etc. Right. And yeah. they are, oh, <laughs> you know, um, when you when you do that, right, and and you think about this and this and sleep and nutrition and fitness, right, and if you do that together, right, then you are happier, more productive, and God knows what, right. So the bit like the sort of biohacker, we also have that kind of community. Right. And then, of course, there are also people who haven't really um, gotten sort of a, a real clear sort of access to all of those topics. Um, for example, they've, I don't know, tried to do a diet and that hasn't worked, etc. And then they are saying, oh, you know, I'm not sure whether this is for me. Right. So that's sort of uh, some of the segments that I'll see. Okay. And um, I mean, let's say all of these segments seem to have become, let's say, like 90% more important <laughs> in the last two years in the pandemic, after the pandemic. Um, I mean, we don't know if there's, will, there will be a return with going back home again to the home office. And um, there are a couple of studies coming out that came out recently saying that especially Generation Z and millennials, but especially generations that people from that generation would not start working anymore at a company that doesn't offer a really strong mental health and other health areas, but specifically mental health offerings. So how do you think like the mental health offerings of the next five to 10 years <laughs> will look like? <laughs> I think there is sort of a, a, a few different things that we can unpack here. I think yeah. first of all, there is sort of the reality of a company and the different types of mental health and mental well-being, right? Um, when we did the analysis looking into healthcare data in the US, um, right, we then looked at sort of how can we actually segment and what do we see really as a reality in terms of company employees and mental well-being, right? And there are three main segments. There is sort of the segment of people, I guess, like myself, right? If I go to the doctor, right, the doctor would say I'm medically healthy, right? Yeah. They don't diagnose something where, okay, we, this is now an ICD code. And now you are sort of in that bu bucket from a medical perspective, right? About when we did the data analysis, about 75% of employees were in that bucket, right? They 
they still benefit from mental well-being related things, right? Everyone, of course, benefits from increased self-awareness, um, sort of knowing how to deal with the stories in your head, being aware what your emotional state is that underlies the story, being aware what your body sensations is, right? This is just general things. Um, and, and this is sort of a category of people, right? That probably would be medically from a diagnostic mental health perspective, be diagnosed by a doctor as sort of being broadly healthy, but still benefiting from more mental well-being. Mm -hmm. Then there is a second category that was about um, 20%, 23% of people, right? You know, there, there might be anxiety related things, right? Where then Counseling, for example, might be helpful for them in this kind of bucket, right? So you could say they are sort of a moderate category, right? And then there is sort of usually one or two percent when you go into the data that is actually severe mental health topics, right? Which is sort of then really requiring from a sort of medical perspective, um, real support, right? And these are sort of other three buckets that we found in the data. But I think if we now move towards sort of what are some of the expectations that employees and also younger employees have, right? And since we are a very young company um, in terms of average age, when this is, of course, something that is important um, also in terms of recruiting when people ask uh, questions. Mm -hmm. I think there is something, something around... Um, purpose and aspiration and uh, how does personal purpose and personal aspirations align with company purpose company aspirations just sharing our company right we as a company have the purpose to contribute to sustainable positive change in the world right and of course that resonates with a lot of people in the young generation right because they are like okay i don't want to work uh, just to sort of have something to do between nine and five and and getting a salary in my into my account but actually yeah. having sort of a purpose that aligns with the things that i believe strong that i think that is one component that is important i think the the other uh, component is then sort of is there a way of working that is fun and that is sustainable and, um, you know, also contributes to mental well-being of an employee, right? And there I would say, you know, while we've now had many extremes over the last few years, right? Uh, it, before it was very much in person, then suddenly mm -hmm. with the pandemic, it was uh, everyone working from home, right? Now there are increasingly hybrid models coming and then people like the flexibility that they had when working from home. But we also hear very clearly that people say, well, you know, for me, work and working in a company is also a social experience and a collaboration experience and a people experience, right? And yes, it is maybe convenient that I sort of can work from my desk at home, right? But if I work um, more than 200 days from my desk at home, right, it is a little bit lonely, right? And therefore, yeah. there is now uh, that kind of... Um, broader way of working. And I say it like that, uh, Anna, right? Because the way of working to a, a large degree defines the mental well-being and also mental health of people, right? So I'm just making it up as an extreme example, right? If you provide horrific way of working conditions and offer a mental health program, right? That's sort of where I would say, well, yeah. why don't you change the way of working so that it um, it doesn't cause the mental health problems in the first place that you then try to fix afterwards, right? Yeah. So we get to a model where then the way of working is sort of beneficial for those people, right? And they have, for example, social interactions, and they have the flexibility that they need that they don't get sort of into pressure headspace, right? Where if you feel torn between you know, what you need to do in your private life versus how your company way of working is, right? That creates for some people anxiety or, you know, let's say other negative feelings. And mm -hmm. right? so in that sense, that's why for, for me, the the whole health and well-being topic is also linked to the way of working and thinking about smart ways of working that then ideally you sort of have mental health and well-being or sort of general health and well-being, right? Or physical as well, built in ideally. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get into new models, I want to really bring up this expression like the great resignation, 
um, which also I found in a couple of newsletters from McKinsey. So, I mean, in the way that it becomes or it has become a tremendous problem. I mean, I don't know, I guess in America even more because there was this one podcast from this uh, woman, I really don't remember exactly the name, but she basically said like she quit her job in the pandemic and she was super happy about it. And it was the most listened to podcast in America for a while. So, and do actually companies approached you with that kind of problem saying like, okay, we have tremendous kind of disadvantages now and are really scared of our future because we have so many people leaving. Is this something as a kind of a task that McKinsey is experiencing? Uh, yes. Uh, if I compare it sort of the traditional times, right, many years ago, and then sort of the newer themes that are coming up, right, there is sort of has always been a theme around talent management, we could say, right? It has always been part of, you know, our organization practice, right? Where there was always work in the area of talent management, strategic workforce planning, right? Uh, capabilities, what are capabilities that are needed and, and how do you as a company uh, get to those capabilities, right? Then there are now two newer things that are emerging in that space, right? One is um, also a study that uh, that was done uh, together with the German Science and, and, and Business Foundation about what are skills of the future, right? This is then more related to mm -hmm. the tech skills, right? Where there are many companies, right? And in Germany, we have many of those industrial companies, right? They are like, okay, we've got mechanical engineers, we've got electrical engineers, we've got software engineers, right? But in the future, what do we need, right? And that there are certain coding skills, etc that are then sort of for an industrial company, right? It, it has not been the traditional workforce and skills that, right? That is sort of a new thing related to the, the digital skills, right? And what digital skills does in a country like Germany or a, a Europe or US need? And how do you plan for that, right? And then the other piece is the health and well-being topic, right? Where then companies say, and to your to your point um, from earlier, um, and that there is a demand for health and well-being at the workplace, right? And it's less of a private thing, right? Where it's like, okay, you work and it is as it is, and then you need to deal with your health and well-being at home somehow. Right? Um, mm -hmm. So it has become more of a topic in the workplace, and there are increasingly companies who are then thinking about how I should define my health and well-being sort of, let's say, programs, etc. right? And what should I offer and what should I not offer and for whom and um, how do I sort of segment the employee population? That has been a topic that has uh, come up quite a bit over the last few years. And, and we've gotten for a few years now a health and well-being service line uh, dedicated to that. Okay. And um, so coming back quickly a little bit to these, like how this can look like, for example, was it? I think last year, um, Salesforce, Mark Benioff bought this retreat outside San Francisco, um, where like people can work now most of the week and just, or even maybe even the whole week. So they basically work like in a Robinson <laughs> club, <laughs> something like that. It looked like a little bit like that, but it was in nature. It was like a big atrium, like having meetings outside on a lawn. I mean, it's San Francisco. It's like a little bit of a hippie thing maybe also. But I mean, it, it seemed to be a very big break in the idea, like rushing in in the morning, um, going to your office, putting on your computer in a suit and stuff. And suddenly you sit outside in your yoga pants, you chat to everybody. Mm, from a McKinsey perspective, do you think this is very effective? <laughs> Just saying. Well, I think there, there is, you know, there are a few different things what people want to get out, right? And in the US, employee health and, and, and disease management programs have been a thing for many uh, years. And many of the digital health companies that are now um, pretty established have actually started with this employee health uh, programs, right? Because in the US, we've got sort of yeah. employer um, health insurance um, coverage in, in many instances, right? So there is sort of a health and disease management aspect, especially in the US, right? Where then 
companies say, oh, we've got, I'm just making it up, right? We've got 2000 employees with diabetes and now we contract for a diabetes program. And then those people are happier, they are healthier and they, they cost less for our health insurance that we as a company need to cover. And there is less absenteeism, right? There is sort of multiple benefits that sort of companies, especially American companies that sort of cover their employee health insurance um, pursue. Right? And then there is sort of also the macroeconomic view, right? If I, if I just take a step back and say, so what are really the problems of poor health, right? And then we can come back to well-being in a second as well. Right? So the numbers yeah. for Europe now uh, that I've got top of my mind, and, and these were numbers already pre-COVID, right? Um, the cost of poor health in Europe, right, was on average per year 2.7 trillion US dollars, right? That is about 15% wow. of GDP per year, right, in what we could describe from an economic perspective, lost economic opportunity, right? So this is equivalent to $5,000 per person in Europe per year, right? And if you then say sort of what drives this cost of poor health, if we call it like that, right? Mm -hmm. And then 20% of that is driven by musculoskeletal disorders, right? So back pain, neck pain, um, stuff like that, which of course is not particularly help if people sit in all sorts of poses in front of computers all day long. Yeah. So 24% of that is very musculoskeletal physical health, right? But then when we look at category number two and category number three, right, then um, category number two is mental health disorders such as depression, anxiety. They account for 18% of the lost economic opportunity. And the third category is neurological disorders like migraine, headache, um, etc. They account for 13%, right? But if, if one then looks at sort of how could this burden of poor health right, be reduced, right? Then if one would consistently or let's say more consistently apply the interventions that we have at our disposable today, Right, 30% of that burden could be reduced if we sort of apply things in a more structured and uh, integrated way and, and make it possible for employees, for example, to actually do something about their mental well-being or do something about their physical well-being, their fitness, um, mobility, um, et cetera, right? And that would have already huge improvements, right? If you would do that consistently over the next 20 years from a macroeconomic perspective, but uh, a 65-year-old in Europe in 2040 would be as healthy as a 55-year-old today on average. Wow. Right? Okay. So this is huge, right? Um, so I would be like 30 right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Maybe even younger. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm doing everything you say. You know, and, and usually, and this is what I find um, so fascinating about health and well-being, right? Usually... There is the narrative in the, this world that healthcare cost is expensive, right? And, and it's too expensive and often sort of it's as percentage of GDP, right? And then there are drafts mm -hmm. that in some countries, the healthcare costs rise faster than the GDP grows, right? And there is this whole narrative that healthcare costs and budgets need to be controlled and managed down, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, right, if one takes the narrative that we've just been exploring, we would say if one, like as a country and also to some degree as a company, if one would strategically invest in better health and well-being for our populations, right, you would then have the, the health benefits that we just talked about, sort of a 65-year-old is like a 55-year-old. There would be millions of more people alive um, in Europe in, uh, in 2040 if you would do that as well, right? And, and that's now the really, what I think, cool thing is, you would actually have a positive economic impact. And right? so if one shifts the narrative and looks like that uh, from managing health as a budget that needs to be controlled and, and in some countries, right, people say reduced, right, towards actually treating health and well-being as a strategic investment opportunity for a country, an economy, or also to some degree a company, Right? So when you calculate this number and you would say we apply our health and well-being interventions that we have and that today we as a society don't fully apply, right? Mm -hmm. you 
you would contribute 2.4 trillion US dollars to European's GDP by 2040, which would be a 10% boost above projections, right? And since people wow. usually do GDP numbers sort of by year, right, we are talking about up to half a percentage point of additional GDP growth per year, right? And that is inside a magnitude of um, positive impact. That is about the size of the demographic issue that we have in Europe, right, with aging population, right? Um, that uh, this is sort of a positive effect that is in the same range where the demographic problems are a negative effect, right? So it's almost, you could almost counter um, a large part of the demographic problems that we will be getting into into Europe over the next 20 years uh, if you strategically wow. invest in health and well-being. Right? And then the final thing I'll say, which is then even cooler, in my opinion, um, is that um, when you look at sort of the business case for a country, right? Um, and of course, countries often don't think about it like that. But for every dollar you would invest strategically in more health and well-being into your country, Right. Depending on which country we look at, you would get a return of either somewhere between two dollars and four dollars. Right. If you're a country in a low and middle in income country, right, with very limited healthcare infrastructure, right, the return profile is slightly different versus an industrialized country that already has a lot of infrastructure. Right. So there is a bit of that. You get somewhere between two dollars and four dollars for every dollar invested. Right. But we haven't found really countries where you would say, Oh, the, the return is negative, right? Because you have so much yeah. positive effects in terms of, you know, um, employee health and well-being, participation in the workforce, et cetera, that, uh, that the business case is positive. And I think that is a very positive and promising, um, a message, right? Uh, because uh, it, it shifts the narrative from health and well-being uh, towards something positive to invest in, right? And, and I think bringing it back to your topic, right? That is then a narrative that you can have at a country level, you can have it at a company level, and you can have it as a personal level. That's very interesting. And the country perspective is something that people should really start also to think about, because until now, it's kind of a private engagement, what do you do with your health or not, if you work somewhere. I mean, especially here in, in Europe, I feel. But I mean, um, if we say like the idea of health in general, mental health and well-being is becoming more important also for companies. So, and there are already two companies that come to my mind. One of them is Dr. Bronner's, who already offering, at least Dr. Bronner's is doing this ketamine therapy for their employees. So, and, and since we see the rise of the bigger picture, like psychedelics in the well-being market also, you almost could say, This is something that seems to be um, kind of like the most logical thing in the future, that more and more companies would actually offer that kind of therapy because it's often, as we start to realize now, often a possibility to really resolve underlying traumas that sometimes lead to these typical diseases like back pain, migraine, and so on. And I mean, as you know, there are so many studies already about microdosing for migraines and with LSD and all over the world. So at, in Switzerland and the Netherlands. So what is your perspective? I mean, you must read all of these articles coming out every day in Forbes saying like, okay, this is the next big thing. Da, da. So how is your perception of this from somebody coming from a classic business concept or background? It's a great question. I think there are a few different dimensions here, right? On the one hand, we have a bit the different employee distribution, right? And what I said earlier about mental health, right? You can think about it also for different diseases, right? So you have mm -hmm. a, you, usually, right? Usually and hopefully a pretty large bucket and group of people that would be classified as medically mostly healthy, right? And there it's about well-being. Then you have people that have sort of moderate uh, kind of problems. And then you have uh, hopefully a relatively small group of people who have really severe problems. The second dimension is then the different problems that people can have, right? So one topic is the whole 
chronic cardiovascular disease bucket. Often it goes towards um, overweight, uh, too little um, movement, uh, turning into diabetes type 2. From diabetes type 2, uh, starting additional cardiovascular diseases, right? And, and in the US, right, the numbers are astounding. Um, um, I recently read a paper about sort of what is the share of multi-morbid uh, people in the US, right, where the numbers are, are very high in terms of people having several uh, conditions uh, at the same time, right? Often we have clusters like hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, uh, all, uh, and sometimes then chronic kidney disease comes um, in addition, right? So th these are then clusters that, that uh, there is then, of course, the topic is then sustainable behavior change, right? In addition to the classic medical interventions that one would do. Right. If we do a little thought experiment, right? If I was a, a person who was severely overweight, right? Moves very little, sleeps very badly, has maybe anxiety and mental health issues. And it's pretty clear if you look at patient statistics, et cetera, that this is not going to end very well if I don't get towards sustainable behavior change. Right. And sustainable behavior change means sleeping better, eating better moving more and sort of getting into a more positive mind frame, right? And ideally, you try to get those people into a virtuous cycle, right? Where then some of those things lead to gradual improvements and then they get excited about that. They feel better, right? Um, and then they say this is worth um, pursuing, right? And, um, and then, of course, there is then the medical dimension where then the diseases that I've been talking about, there's, of course, ideally a doctor involved, a guiding or nurses involved or, or chronic disease care um, managers that are guiding those people, right? So this is sort of one bucket. Then there is the other bucket of mental health, right? Then there's the third bucket, what we talked about, musculoskeletal. And these different patients have different needs, right? And then there is the question of what is the arsenal of interventions that you and now think it's an important uh, distinction what is the arsenal of interventions that is sort of covered by, let's say, the classic healthcare system, like a doctor, a nurse, mm -hmm. etc.? What are the things that a company offers? And what are the things that is sort of in the realm of the private, how this person lives their life, right? And, yeah. and there I see yeah. huge differences. Right. And the, the classic thing, especially in some European countries, right, where we have um, established sort of health systems, right? We've had some mindset in some countries, right? That um, health is a private thing, right? And we have mm -hmm. a health system. And when you've got a problem, then you go to your doctor. And when you've got a big problem, then you go to the hospital, right? But the, mm -hmm. the, the, the company has not a big role, right? Because there is, yeah. there is the private and there is the health system, right? And this has evolved over the last few years uh, that increasingly companies have a bigger role in health and well-being um, than before. Yeah, but I mean, that means if a company would offer this, of course, in a medical way and with medical support and not just like here, it's your ticket to go to Burning Man or something. For example, like a, a friend of mine lives in Chicago and there was this shooting recently in this mall like where this kid shot a couple of people. And so that person, a friend of mine, he lived close by and pretty much half of this neighborhood was not there, but it was just 10 minutes away from mm -hmm. their home. So a lot of these people living close where this has happened were super traumatized afterwards. And um, some of his neighbors couldn't even leave the house, let alone going to work. And although nothing physically happened to them, they were not shot or anything, they didn't even see it are witnessing it, but they were strongly affected by something like that. So, and then, as we know, I mean, it's still in the process of uh, being legalized, but for example, MDMA-assisted therapy would actually contribute tremendously to somebody not even getting into a longer phase of traumatization after this. And this is something that, okay, you could say now, is this happening because if you become really like almost cynical, is this because of the government didn't really do something? Is this because that person, the shooter, had a private problem and so on? But still, there's a whole community of people that's affected by this. Mm -hmm. So, and again, like so many people like having had that experience could not go to work anymore. So 
now there's an interesting situation where you could say, okay, if you have a company and the future is saying, okay, you saying you witnessed this, we could offer you like a, let's say, fast treatment to not even experience like a lifelong trauma after this. Do you think this is something that is realistic in, in the future that companies take over this kind of, let's say, extra responsibility for their employees? Mm. I think there is different types of, of companies. I see sort of three. Right, one is a very, I'd say, old school company, right, who says, oh, you know, we do the bare minimum, right, because we believe that um, in the old mantra that health is a very private thing. And therefore, yeah. if people have a problem, they should go to the doctor and we are the workplace. And that's the difference, right? Um, mm. But then there is a second group of uh, growing companies who say, People spend a lot of time uh, in their life at the workplace, right? And we like also the prevention type uh, topics. People get the idea that, well, if you set the condition and provide offerings to keep people happy and healthy, that that actually might be a good idea, right? And, and given the macroeconomic numbers that I've given you earlier, right, it is actually calculated to be a good idea, right? So you don't need to be altruistic to do that. If you have a company, then you employ a few hundred or a few thousand people, right? What I said earlier, the business case is positive. Um, if you contribute towards health and well-being of your employees, right? And generally, happier and healthier employees are more creative, are more productive, uh, are less absent from work, etc. Right? So there is now this Second group of companies will say, therefore, we are doing something in the health and, and well-being space. A detailed look at that is that they often focus on positive, sustainable behaviors that keep people happy and healthy. But there are also some uh, companies via then a company physician or something like that who provide checkups, etc., and contribute towards detecting diseases that otherwise would go missed, right? So there are examples where then a dermatologist does a session once a year in a company, right? And then moles are being checked. And then if you say a thousand people and you detect one or two melanomas in an early stage, right? You, you probably saved uh, someone's life just by that one session that you had mm -hmm. at one point in the year. Similarly, right? There are then some other checkups that you could do, right? Um, And that is sort of where a lot of companies are going, helping people with health and well-being related micro habits, maybe with some checkups. And that's then the third category of companies, the ones that are really going into the intervention space, right? And there I see fewer companies where then they would say, okay, there is a problem and now we provide an intervention, right? There is still a mindset, at least in Europe, right? Where then people say, Now we've crossed the threshold, right? Yeah, Now this has yeah. become a medical condition and mm -hmm. therefore we've got doctors and then, you know, we maybe give people proactively the address of 10 psychologists or psychiatrists or actually exactly. crisis counseling, right? But we are staying away from that. That is sort of um, where I then see a distinction, right, between sort of that category two company that do health and well-being related things, maybe some checkups, and then a category three of those companies where I see quite few people who go sort of into real um, interventions, right? And then coming back to the earlier point that we see more in the US, right, where companies actually need to pay health insurance for their employees, right? right? And there is then mm. a lot more uh, intervention by companies um, in the US in such settings, right, where health insurance is part pretty much of the company budget and therefore part of the thinking right then in Europe where usually uh, health insurance is covered right either by the, the state like in the UK with the national health system right or by insurances um, like in Germany uh, health insurances right yeah I mean that's that's true that in in Europe this is still very much like this is outside of our company comfort zone now you have to take over by yourself kind of thing, right? I mean, again, like since these last two years, this has changed, especially I feel with the younger generation, like maybe Zed or even like millennials too. So, and then there was this one scene in Mad Men in the first season when Don Draper goes to the doctor <laughs> and he's 36 and a doctor says, you're close to a heart attack. 
And um, he's like, he cannot believe it because he's so good looking and he has his <laughs> great body, but he's close to a heart attack. And then we learn in the bigger picture or like in, in the further seasons that obviously his whole persona is not even himself. And then he, he's like traumatized because of his not being the person that he tells everybody and, and, and mm. so on. So, and I feel like this perception of... Um, to say it with this book from Bessel van der Kock, like the body keeps the score, that so many things mm. happening like way back in, in childhood that you don't even really remember that is stored in your body that eventually will cause problems in your life as a grown-up, which your brain will not even remember what has happened mm. to you. So my feeling is, especially in the last two years, that this kind of, let's say, rediscovery, especially in the psychedelic science field, has a tremendous power to change also the perception of health in general. Like you are sick, you go into a doctor, he will give you a medication and then you take it and then it's gone. So this kind of very simple mm. idea, which we kind of all grew up with, seems to disappear or at least like in a younger generation kind of People don't engage in that way anymore. They're way more mm. kind of proactive with their own activities, going somewhere to try out things by themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody told them to do it, not a doctor, not a therapist. And how do you think, let's say, this will change the company culture if employees become more their own entrepreneur for themselves, like for their lives even, I feel. Yeah, and this is a wonderful topic. Being in Germany, right, where um, the whole nation seems to be pretty focused on cars, right? I find it fascinating yeah. that <laughs> I would say most Germans will, will know more yeah. about how their car works than how their yeah. body works, right? Which That's is, true. Um, which uh, I, I find uh, fascinating. I think there are a few really important things here, what you said, uh, Anne, right? The, the traditional thinking, and I still encounter that working in healthcare, right, is that people think, okay, my body is a bit like a machine, right? And if that machine has a problem, I go to a doctor and the doctor then fixes the machine, but the mental part is like completely different, right? Um, And of course, that is a very uh, simplistic and very, well, not smart way of thinking, right? Because we've got these massive interconnections between the physical and the mental um, health and, and well-being. That then the question becomes, how do you deal with your mental health and well-being, right? And this is often something that people encounter after they've had trauma, in some cases without even knowing it, right? And then they sort of have this suffering, uh, if we can call it like that, and they try out all sorts of things to sort of alleviate their suffering. And then they try out all sorts of things and some work and some others don't, right? But we as a society, if I talk about it from a, let's say, a health competence of our society, right, it would be beneficial, A, if we would understand a little bit more, right, how the interconnections go, right, because if I don't sleep well, I'm pretty much inducing anxiety by sleep deprivation or, or low quality sleep. If I don't move and I sit the whole day on the sofa at my desk, then I pretty much also induce anxiety mm -hmm. uh, by being immobile and we, we are sort of mobile creatures and being built to be mobile, right? And if I then eat badly, then I exacerbate the whole problem. And if I then are in a, a negative mental frame, then it gets a, a lot worse. And this is sort of the classic trajectory that we see with sort of lots of people, millions of people in our societies getting into chronic disease, which would be avoidable if we had more of a health and well-being mindset and, and more keeping healthy, right? The other thing, which is probably human, right, is many people live their lives as if they would be living forever, right? Um, and yeah. they are not even thinking about that, right? What I just did over holiday, I read a book, right? And in that book, there was a passage about um, a person saying that based on their birth and, and year of birth and their gender, right, they will be on average so and so many years and therefore they have so and so many years left and then they even calculated it into the days that they have left. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Which then provides a very interesting to some people disturbing perspective. Right. And then I've actually calculated that for myself. There are actually a few uh, interesting calculators on the, um, uh, on the internet where sort of you start with 
sort of what is your life expectancy based on the year you are born, the country you are born and the gender oh. that you have. Okay. So in my case, uh, that is sort of, I think, 84 or 82, I forgot the exact number, right? And then mm -hmm. you are asked about more than 10 questions about your lifestyle and right? how stressed you are. Are you smoking or are you not smoking? How much alcohol are you drinking? Do you have cancer cases in your family? Do you have cancer cases in your sibling's parent circle or in the wider circle? Do you live in a place with good air quality or bad air quality? Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and there are then epidemiological studies behind it. Depending on what you click, then your number goes up <laughs> or down, right? Oh, um, okay. So then you, you see, right? And this is then an interesting visualization about uh, and also calculation, right? How your lifestyle choices, right? And, and typical easy ones are how much alcohol do you drink and do you smoke or not? This has a massive effect, right? Which people generally seem to ignore, right? Yeah. Um, and then the question becomes, right? What is more important for you, right? Is sort of short-term joy more important for you? And you do maybe all of those things that actually sort of reduce a few healthy life years or actually Are you more interested in having more healthy life years and spending maybe more time with your grandchildren uh, later? Or do you try to find a balance, right? And um, having been on that journey, I try to find a balance, right? I try to have some micro habits that help me with positive health and well-being, right? Especially during the week from Monday to Friday. Micro habits related to sleep, nutrition, fitness, stress management. Right? And then the other part is also to have some fun and to, to then have your cheat days, as some of our health coaches would say, right? Where you cheat then mm. um, eat uh, lots of ice cream and chocolate, in my case, on Saturdays and Sundays. Right? But the important thing is you don't feel bad about it because that is part of the program mm. that you have fun. People think, oh, health and healthcare is a heavy, boring topic, right? And, and you need to be sensible and you need to eat less and you need to eat boring things and not the things that you like, right? Um, whereas then actually in also then on our company level, right, we try to make health and well-being fun and easy to do in the daily lives, right? So the important bit is people usually ask me three questions, right? Does it help? How can I integrate it in my life? And is it fun? And that's sort of the three main. Okay. And I think if you up with health and well-being programs that are fun and can be relatively easily integrated into daily life, and of course people um, want to have results, right? Then you are on a on a positive track. I really like it. What some person once said: I have all of this knowledge, right, of what I should do, and then life gets in the way. <laughs> Yeah, or some people realize I do all of this. I go to yoga five times a week. I, I just eat gluten-free. I only eat vegan ice cream and I still feel shit. People thought, okay, if I only do this, 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 and that, that, that more often, mm. then I must feel really good because I did all of these things. But suddenly they realize, well, it's not obviously the root cause of things, mm. why I still feel that way. So, but does McKinsey actually already also offers like kind of a healthcare consulting for companies? Are you guys already doing this? Yes, we help some companies with their health and well-being programs, designing them in a positive way. But you also mentioned something that is extremely important in my point of view, the connection sort of between the, the physical, what you eat and, and, um, and how much you move and then your mental well-being, right? And, um, you know, our health and well-being program is relatively personalized, right? So you can do individual journeys then with a health coach and also digital means. Okay. And then you can do uh, stuff together as a team. And especially when you do the individual things, right, the coaches then deal with your needs and your aspirations and your underlying motivation, right? And if your underlying motivation is to lose five kilos of weight, right, then we will go less into other stuff, right? Uh, but what I find important is the multi-dimensional part of that, right? Because as mentioned before, sleep impacts my mental state. Uh, nutrition um, also in many cases uh, impacts that mental state, my movement uh, impacts my mental state. Right? And then we have, again, I would say this comes to the health competency for us as a society. 
um, we have a relatively usually limited understanding how this whole thing works, right? So for example, yeah. if I take my own example, right? 10 years ago, my mental state would have been hugely defined by the story in my head, right? What is the story that I'm telling myself in my head and therefore I create a perceived reality for me that doesn't need to be very close and in many cases it isn't very close to actual objective reality or to your reality, right? Your subjective reality is different than my subjective reality, right? Mm. Because you, you might have different fears and different triggers and different emotions, right? We experience the same situation. You tell yourself a very different story than I tell the, myself a very different story, right? But that's normal and that's part of the human condition, right? But it is helpful, at least it was helpful for me to then be clear that there is the story in my head and then there is the layer of the emotions underneath, right? And to me personally, it was helpful to then be aware what are those emotions currently, right? 10 years ago, I was only in the story in my head and I was not even clear what my emotions underlying were, right? And then there is sort of the third level of what are your body sensations, right? And then trauma yeah. is often stored uh, or let's see, or manifests itself in body sensations, right? My body sensation that is sort of a, a, a indicator of my, let's say, stress level is my stomach, right? How tight is the knot in my stomach indicates very well sort of what my stress level is, right? And the more stressed I am, the tighter the knot. And when I'm relaxed, then there is no knot, right? But I wasn't aware of that 10 years ago, right? Because I was just in the story in my head, right? And we often then catastrophize and all sorts of um, negative scenarios, right? Uh, that are also all very well-known psychological phenomena, right? But we deal with them as if they were reality and if they would be like this forever, right? So sometimes when we when we are in a negative mental health state, right? It feels very hopeless. Um, it feels very negative, right? And we, we don't even see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? For me, it was personally very helpful to be aware of, okay, there is the story in my head and it doesn't need to be true, but that's just what my head does, right? It's sort of what brains do, right? Then there mm -hmm. are the emotions, right? And for me, it was very helpful to say, what are my four main negative emotions that I have, right? Frustration, when does frustration come up and when does it subside? right? Or, or anger or anxiety, right? And when an emotion like that comes up, people often react as if it's not a passing phenomenon, but as if it would stay forever, right? So it's mm. a bit like the weather, right? Sometimes positive emotion is coming up and then it fades away. And then sometimes anxiety is coming up and then after a while it fades away, right? But we often deal in a very unsophisticated space with our mental state, right? Because we are like, oh my God, I feel so bad. Oh my God, all is terrible, right? When it starts raining, you are also not reacting and say, oh my God, it's raining. It probably will now rain until I die, right? Is that, yeah. we, we, we are like, <laughs> okay, now it's not raining. Maybe I would have preferred sun, but you know, my experience is the rain will stop again and the sun will come out again, right? But when we feel anxiety, mm -hmm. etc., then often, and I'm not now talking about severe depression, etc., right? But often people are like, oh my God, and, and they are then sort of going even more into the story in their head, right? And are sort of catastrophizing and scenario thinking even more and sort of are getting into a rabbit hole of that, right? Whereas what I like about the meditation self-awareness, right? Whereas like people are then teaching you to say, oh, okay, now, anxiety is coming up, but I know that it will go down again and I'm observing it. And what is triggering this anxiety and how, right? This is, has been a huge journey for me personally, being then aware, what's the story in mm -hmm. my head? What's the underlying emotion? What's my body sensation? And then being able to deal with that. And I feel many people in our societies have relatively limited knowledge about it and also relatively limited sort of then ways how to deal with it. And this is sort of then where I would say there is then health competency and there is then a lot what also companies can do to help people uh, deal with their mental well-being in a, in a more productive way. Mm. I mean, I think it's super interesting what you say, but something I want to come back to is because that's obviously a very big question is uh, what we said earlier that let's say in the European context, 
this is where the company, your job is, and then you go home and do your meditation and it's almost like disconnected from each other if you do a meditation, if you don't drink a bottle of wine or something <laughs> instead of doing a meditation. But in America, I mean, and I want to say, obviously, especially in a rather tech and Silicon Valley focused context, it's becoming more and more like a normality to offer you know, tools to people, to employees like psychedelic therapies or experiences, sometimes even as a team, to really, really get into the bigger emotions or the bigger traumas. But it's still the question, do you think that a company offering this, it's almost like it's an extra set of parents you have suddenly on your hands? Because the question also from a data perspective, by the way, is always like, will these companies then know that you, let's say, were battling depression before you maybe, you know, entered this workspace or, which is a total McKinsey question, I feel. But also like how much access should they have to your personal mental health story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this something that you think will become, I almost want to say like, a problem or is it just a data problem that can be resolved? I personally don't think it's just a data problem. It also has a yeah. bit of how do you construct health and well-being programs um, for employees that are then impactful, that are fun, that are uh, helpful for employees, right? Um, what our conviction is in, in our health and well-being program is that it is voluntary and not forced and that people share as much as they want to share, mm -hmm. but there is no obligation to share. And from that point of view, uh, that has worked very well so far. And then there are some people who are choosing to share more. And then there are some people um, choosing uh, to share less, right? So, and, and then my personal experience is I have shared widely that, you know, for me, I've dealt with anxiety uh, topics, or you could also say um, mental well-being topics, right? Where, you know, if you frame it less about anxiety, my thing was like, how can I actually do the job that I love, uh, but it is quite demanding, right? How can I be a great uh, husband? How can I be a great father? And there are relatively limited hours uh, in the day. And how do I do that by staying positive and balanced, right? That was sort of my topic. And I was very openly mm -hmm. sharing about it within our company and even outside of our company. And this topic that some people might call stress management, other people might call anxiety, right? I actually called it anxiety, right? That I feel anxiety on a Monday, I feel anxiety on a Tuesday, mm -hmm. I feel anxiety on a Wednesday, right? That was sort of eight, nine years. That's how I got into biohacking, uh, Anna, right? And then I personally explored then mindfulness, stress management, breathing techniques, meditation, and all that kind of stuff. And then from there, I went into sleep. And from there, I went into better nutrition. And from there, I went to fitness. And now I've got my, you know, set of micro habits that I managed to fit in my day that I would say keep me sort of happier and, and healthier. But I wasn't forced to share that, you know, I feel anxiety. I chose to. And actually, just personally, I found it an extremely positive experience, right? Because okay. people then related to that and are like, oh, wow, there is actually someone who's talking about the pressures of normal business life, right? Um, if you are an engaged employee, right, you will yeah. to some degree probably identify and uh, or feel, you know, invested in your work and that then can create pressure and that and then it's all about the balance. You know, some people then choose to share more and, and some people like me find that actually enriching and it opened so many doors for me and, and I met so many wonderful people on this, you know, what some people might call biohacking journey, but other people are like, okay, well, this is what I would like to keep private and I'm working on this, but I'm not really sharing that much sort of what's going on um, um, under the hood. This, what you described is relevant for, for employees in any case, but if you go on LinkedIn, like the awareness of our founders mm -hmm. and CEOs and even VCs is becoming much stronger around their personal journey with things. And I feel like, for example, in the psychedelic space, one thing I found very interesting from the beginning is that there's so many founders and again, even VCs who came into the space because of their mm. personal story and because they had not been able to resolve many things. Of course, it will make people more productive. I mean, obviously, but um, 
Do you think it will also really generate a bigger change in society that people have less problems to talk about this or maybe that it doesn't even lead to severe depression anymore if you start to talk about mm. this earlier, right? Yeah, I think what, what you uh, allude to and also with the entrepreneurship story, I find it fascinating if we take ADHD as an example. If you look at um, at successful entrepreneurs, right, you will find that quite a few will have ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you look into prisons of this world, you will see that also a lot of people in prison have ADHD. And yes, of course, ADHD is a spectrum of, of, of things, right? And it's not like completely sort of one thing, right? But I think it's, a, it's an example, right, that says that there is something there, right, in, in terms of you know, mental neurological setup. And some people are able to use it almost as their superpower and they become billionaire entrepreneurs with this thing, right? And other people, right? And mm -hmm. I don't want to oversimplify anything right here, but other people actually struggle with a condition that medical doctors would describe ADHD and then they get into trouble and actually quite a part of that end up in prison. If you just look at the healthcare statistics of this world, right? It's a fact. There is a share of uh, prisoners that have ADHD and then there is a share of extremely successful entrepreneurs and also sometimes scientists and artists that have ADHD, mm -hmm. right? And then the question is, how do we deal with something like that, right? And are we able to productively deal with it and, and find a positive set of, let's say, behaviors and ways to how to deal with it? Or are we overwhelmed and maybe it, it turns out to be uh, quite detrimental, right? I think that is then where I would hope that we both as a society and as companies and as individuals, right, we are exploring towards what is a set of micro habits is the word that I now used a few times, right, that actually can help me towards more health and well-being and more fun and maybe also more success in the world. Well, I mean, it's actually what you said. Um, I think it's one of the teachers said this to Richard Branson, he would either become an entrepreneur or a criminal. We know what happened to him. <laughs> so, But all these kind of questions I feel like are coming now to the surface and there are actually a lot of researches going on with LSD and microdosing to treat maybe adult ADHD. So, I mean, it's not anymore like, oh my God, this is something really terrible. I could never talk to anybody about this. So, and um, what I think about a lot is how this will change the idea of business in the first place. So, because right now it's like, I mean, even if you go on Instagram, yeah, you have to get up at five and then meditate and then you go to work out and you already have like a mushroom coffee that's not going to make your system crash. And then you're the first guy in the office. So this whole interesting optimization thing, which I'm very, feel attracted to that very much too, but I feel like it's still based on a, on an idea that has nothing to do with community or interaction with people. So, mm. and I, I sometimes feel like we're in a very interesting moment that actually a strong community will be the best business model you, you can ever have, if I can say that. And I mean, it just feel like this is becoming more, more a topic again, or like coming to the forefront. But what is your idea around these things? I think if we look at some of those studies about what contributes to happiness of communities, right? There is this American study that is following a cohort of people, ah. right, from, from birth to uh, over oh. decades. Wow. Okay. And one of the strongest predictors of happiness is actually sort of social community, social interactions, et cetera, right? So if you are, if you are doing all sorts of stuff, uh, but you are completely isolated, right? It is now extreme. And there are the studies, right, that um, when you are in community, right, you have positive health benefits. It's even actually um, epidemiological, right? That if you are in community, you, you live longer, et cetera. Yeah. So there is, of course, this whole body of evidence that uh, social connection is a, an important part just in general health and well-being. Right? But I think uh, to what you allude to, it then also is, of course, people sharing similar motivation, aspiration or purpose, right? And if one then has a, to stick with the example, a community of ADHD people in yeah, the business yeah. world, right? That makes it usually <laughs> extremely interesting for people in that community, 
right? Sort of what are habits that have worked for someone else, right? Can I try those kind of habits? What are experiences that they've made, right? How can they turn something like that, um, which, you know, medically some doctors would classify as sort of a medical condition, right? How can I turn that into a superpower in my daily life yeah. and in my business, right? Where then, yeah. um, that is then where community comes into play. And I talked about health and well-being in a fun context and doing it in community just generally makes it more fun. Right. And that is then also where then the mindset can come in. Right. If I take it as a super heavy topic and I'm like, okay, I've got 25 micro habits and I need to get up at five and then I need to do this and then I need to do this. And then I I sort of grind (laughs) through the day. Right. It's not, it's not fun. And therefore it is usually also then um, hard to sustain that. Right. So therefore, um, what our experience is and what also many of our health coaches uh, say that we work with, right. It's sort of, it's important that you optimize and you don't try to max. Right. So you try to improve a little bit over time, but you don't beat yourself uh, up if Mm -hmm. today was perfect. Right. And also very much sort of doing things right. 80% of the time will already get you a long way. Right. So I personally try to not eat too much chocolate um, um, from Monday to Friday. Right. But uh, Saturday is my cheat day. And then I feel positive about eating a lot of chocolate because that's my cheat day. And I'm supposed to have fun on that day. What kind of chocolate do you eat, actually? I'm just curious. All All right. Thank you so much. It was super insightful. And um, enjoy your chocolate-free day because it's just Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Anna. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club Show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on the newhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.